Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, we're live for another uh, broadcast for the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, as always, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And as you notice, we're doing something different today. We're streaming through Facebook Live. So I'm very excited. Now our Jew3 Podcast will be every Monday at 7 p.m. So they won't uh, have the random times and days. They'll be consistent on a particular day and time. And so I'm excited uh, for us to go to this new transition and hopefully it'll be better uh, for all those who listen faithfully every week. So without further ado, I want to introduce another uh, special guest to the Jew3 Project. Uh, Mr. Stephen Harris, uh, he will be Dr. Stephen Harris uh, once he finishes his uh, PhD program at Harvard uh, University. Uh, but welcome, Stephen. Welcome uh, to you. I appreciate you having me on. Um, I'm excited to, to have this conversation with you. Awesome. So before we get started, for those who um, don't know who you are, could you just give a little bit of background? Sure. Um, so yeah, I am currently work with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention under the leadership of Dr. Russell Moore. Um, so highly involved in um, public policy. Um, I'm here on Capitol Hill right now, um, pretty busy day, um, a couple of Supreme Court decisions that uh, handed down a day and some other stuff going on, but um, pretty much trying to um, engage the public policy space for um, um, one of the largest or the largest Protestant denomination in the country. And that you can imagine, as you can imagine, entails a lot of complex realities, um, particularly for one who kind of exists at the intersection of blackness and theological conservatism. Uh, a lot of stuff I have to work out personally within my own self before I even come to Capitol Hill and try to do something useful. So that's why I labor now. Um, before that, doing a lot of education, which we'll probably talk about, um, there's some pastoral ministry in Kentucky um, before that. Um, married to uh, a beautiful bride who I don't deserve. Uh, and we are the parents of a two-year-old son named Jude, of all things. So, <laughs> yep. Yeah, his name goes along with uh, Jude 3 Project. So <laughs> I'm sure he's earnestly content for the faith. Um, Look, that, that was the hope. So Lord willing. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So um, tell us about your, uh, we want to talk about today, uh, seminaries and divinity schools, what you've been to both. Um, I think you have a very impressive resume and your school uh, experience is definitely varied. I'm sure you have stories upon stories about those. Um, for those who don't know the difference between a seminary and divinity school, um, can you share kind of the difference? Yeah, and so I mean, it's it's a it's a long historical narrative that um, really unpacks this. But I think one of the things I'm always trying to help people understand is, you know, I did an MDiv at Southern Seminary, um, very much so, not just a confessional institution, but Southern is tied to a denominational entity, and so very particular in terms of theological distinctives um, that they are training their students in uh, and uh, calling their faculty to adhere to. Uh, so evangelical seminaries are very much so in the business, if you will, of training uh, future ministers, pastors, people who are involved in full-time ministry. 
um, this is a, a shared kind of vision of certain divinity schools, right? MDiv programs are not just exclusive to evangelical seminaries. Uh, but one of the distinctives that I think you'll find contemporarily is the fact that in the kind of divinity school setting, um, you don't get um, that kind of coalescence around the theological distinctives, right? Uh, while certain divinity schools are still slightly tethered to uh, kind of mainline uh, theological orientations, um, certainly not as strongly as you would see in evangelical seminaries. Um, and that's because the projects are a little different, right? So, so divinity schools um, typically are trying to not just train future practitioners, um, but it's training practitioners with an eye towards engaging in the kind of interreligious existence, right? And so the diversity in terms of religious belief um, is gonna be prized and prioritized in those settings. Um, and that's not to say that in, in the seminary context, you know, you don't see um, diversity, but it's not as much, right? Um, people go to particular evangelical seminaries, usually um, already captured and convicted along the same lines of theological um, conviction as the, the, the training institution. Um, people pursue di divinity school settings um, because they are interested um, in a variety of things. Um, you know, when I was at Yale Div, you know, there were several students who I just had a lot of questions about spirituality. I'm not a, I'm not a believer or an adherent to any faith, traditional faith, um, but I want to spend the next few years talking about spirituality. Um, that's a very common um, occurrence in those settings. And so um, I'm always trying to help people understand that the projects of, of the kind of the entities are a little different so that people can set their expectations rightly. Right. So when I'm at when I was when I'm in a secular divinity school environment, um, I'm expecting particular things that I, that I wouldn't expect of an evangelical seminary setting. We can get into some of those things, but, but I think the, the, the tetheredness to theological distinctives, um, you'll find a little more loose, and I think that's intentional um, in some of these divinity school settings. And I think that's important to understand because um, that kind of lays the framework for how you're going to address schools going forward, uh, because yeah. there is narrative in some spaces that seminary is cemetery and uh, yeah. yeah it's it's where yeah. you go and you you lose your faith uh but yeah understanding the differences between divinity schools and seminaries can kind of be helpful uh when yeah. people are are making this assumption that it's going to be a place where you go to lose your faith i noticed you started at um vanderbilt for your undergrad in religious studies. Mm -hmm. um, so my religious studies uh, was at uh, University of North Florida, and I, I got the kind of, Bart Ehrman was our textbook. Uh, there was there was the uh, kind of orthodoxy was frowned upon. Did you have a similar experience at, at Vanderbilt or? Yeah, so, so I was a, a kind of late bloomer theologically. Um, and and majority of my time at Vanderbilt was spent. I was a pre-med major, so I was originally a neuroscience major for the first three years and uh, ended up transitioning to religious studies um, because of some kind of personal felt callings at that time. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't describe my time there um, as encountering any kind of antagonism. Um, 
but rather again that kind of diversity of perspective right and so at Vanderbilt it's kind of the first time where I heard the name uh, Rudolf Bultmann and was thinking about um, notions of mythologization of the Bible and and how to rightly regard those things, things that were certainly contrary to teachings that I had growing up. I grew up in National Baptist Convention, um, kind of traditional black Baptist church context. And so um, by and large, um, you know, in a Bible believing context. And so um, I think Vandy was my first time um, really intellectually engaging with people who just believe vastly different things um, than I did. and. And rather than being put off by that, I was I was intrigued um, because it challenged me to think about why I believe my beliefs um, and then how to articulate those and commend those in a setting where they weren't shared. Um, and so I, I, I saw a skill being honed at that point um, that would go on to serve me um, for years, uh, even in my work today. And so it wasn't antagonism per se you certainly had your professors who you probably know um you know just just not trying to get get with all that fundamentalism or whatever they they might peg you as um but by and large um it was just a diverse conversation and and what you'll find in spaces like that and i always try to again encourage people to, to understand going in and i think this is is helpful i kind of appreciate it the fundamental assumption is not theological conservatism right it's not a given um, in those in those conversations and that discourse, which again I think is is more helpful, right? I think we all view that as as helpful than a threat, um, because again it it challenges you to unpack some of your presuppositions, right? Rather than sitting at a table where people you already know where we all are, um, that that does you a disservice, I think, in the long run. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and I think you know when you're talking about kind of the kind of what goes along with this idea of, of conservative theology, the it being fundamental in nature. Um, what I'm seeing a lot of too is conservatism and orthodoxy being, being uh, also thrown in with racism. So people see them as one yep. and the same. So, but then when I talk to some of my friends that go to more mainline Duke and they experience racism, at those spaces too. So it's kind of like, well, liberalism isn't the cure for racism because if that's sure. the case, uh, then why are those institutions that are more liberal logically experiencing some of those, some of those things of racism? It might not look the same um, in some spaces. You may have more microaggressions in those spaces and then more, maybe more outright conservative spaces. Did, did you have any, any, um, issues with racism or prejudice at, at any of your the your mainline uh, divinity schools or your seminary experiences? No, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a good point you raise. Um, um, that's even a current conversation on Capitol Hill. I have friends who, who, are, who work for Republican offices and Democrat offices and both lament um, um, some biases that they experience almost on a daily basis along racial lines. Um, I, I think that's true. And certainly I, I would say yes, um, even in spaces where um, Protestant liberalism perhaps, um, or even post-liberalism, um, perhaps with a kind of reigning theological um, orientation, um, I think it's important to realize that a lot of 
well, fun, fun, fundamentally, what we deal with in terms of um, engaging and experiencing racial bias um, runs deeper than a kind of professed theological distinctive, right? I think in our understanding and in, in the history of American Christianity, we realize how a particular conception of, of the Christian narrative and Christian claim um, was very much so tethered to a racist ideology, right? To, to kind of view those two things as compatible. Um, but even antedating that, right? Um, even in some of the Greek philosophies, you have notions of um, different tiers of human value and dignity, right? And I just want to point to that and, and, and as an example of how you can have a kind of racialized system and structure and people um, propagating that regardless or across the board of theological distinctives, right? I think it, it, fundamentally it goes to um, how we view and how we value um, different image bearers, right? And the particular narratives that we give credence to about the value of different people groups. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, you would see the most liberal of a professor or student um, in some of these divinity school spaces. And yet, you know, in conversation, easily discernible that they too hold some of the same stereotypes about people groups uh, that you would typically lament and tag to people on the conservative right. Again, I think um, we've kind of all been um, kind of trained, indoctrinated in this kind of tiered understanding of human dignity and value, um, that it takes a very intentional um, effort to, to debunk um, and to disrupt. And so certainly um, experience at the student level and at the professor level um, across the board. Mm -hmm. I've been seeing on social media um, some statements, and I've made it myself, that in, in choosing a seminary as, a, as an African-American, you almost have to sacrifice um, orthodoxy or sacrifice social justice. Um, mm -hmm. If you go to a more, you know, mainline school, they're going to be heavy on justice, liberation. If you mm -hmm. go to a more conservative space, they're going to be heavy on orthodoxy. And for African-Americans who understand the importance of both, it's kind of hard to navigate um, seminary spaces without being frustrated if you're committed to orthodoxy and justice. Um, yeah. Do you find those to be frustrating uh, realities in, in the spaces that you've occupied and still do? Yeah, I mean, sure. It, it kind of undergirds why I pursued the trajectory that I did, right? And so um, after Vanderbilt, again, which I enjoyed, um, feeling a, a very burdening call towards ministry, um, wanting to be trained um, in an evangelical space, um, trained in orthodoxy, if you will. So I started, started out at Dallas Seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, and then transferred to Southern Seminary. Um, but my eye was always towards making sure that kind of in my preparation and in my training, I had a healthy balance, right? I think one of the burdens that we have, uh, as one of my mentors says, is we have to take all this theological orthodoxy, quote unquote, that we that we get and understand uh, and dip it in chocolate. Uh, and, and what he means by that is not simply trying to show um, how one can commend it in communities and spaces of color, but to have a rereading of the historical narratives that undergird these, these, these theological claims um, with an eye towards um, the historical narratives of how these theological claims impacted 
um, and intersect it with um, communities that we come from, right? And so it involves a double work, right? It involves understanding um, uh, what I'm what I call the um, the upper side of history, meaning the kind of the the, the, the triumphal reading of history, those in power, um, which sadly is usually the narrative along the lines of American Christianity. Uh, that's usually the narrative that is told, um, but also reading it from the underside, um, those that, that lack, lack power um, and how Christianity was complicit um, in a lot of those tragedies, right? Um, we're burdened with the task of doing that double work, um, but I think we, we ultimately end up better for it. Uh, one of the ways in which I tried to make sure that that my own preparation um, had a both and was pursuing both um, evangelical spaces and secular um, academic spaces. Um, because while while we might lament um, some of the theological priorities of certain divinity school spaces, um, it was in these spaces where you get the access to the primary and secondary sources that we we have to be um, well versed in, right? Um, so my advisor when I was at Yale doing that second master's, um, incredible historian named Clarence Hardy, he did his PhD under James Cone. And so um, Cone has been a long conversation partner for me, even in as, as I try to understand my own theological convictions and in many ways give an apologetic for um, what would be the reasons why a person like Cone embarked on uh, the journey that he did, right? And he, he gives this this narrative in the, the 40th edition of, of his uh, Black Theology of Liberation. Um, but I, I, I valued um, that relationship with my advisor. I valued those relationships with those professors who didn't share my theological convictions, um, but had much to offer in terms of being trained as an archivist, historical archivist, um, we're doing great work themselves in terms of um, providing interventions and, and historiographies that needed interventions. And so we have to we have to take the best of, of both worlds in order to make sure that we're formed in a holistic way um, to advance the things that we're trying to advance. Um, what it means experientially is um, uh, some headache, right? It means that we constantly feel <laughs> um, a kind of Du Boisian two-ness within Christendom, right? Um, du Bois is making that claim about just being black in America, but we feel it within Christendom, right? Um, and we have to we have to burrow through that. And I certainly experienced that as I made choice of the training and academic trajectory that I have. Um, but it was intentional for that purpose. There were things that I didn't get or couldn't get at Evangelical Seminary, even though they're making strides. I want to say that. Um, it's slow strides, slow strides, but they're trying. Um, but I knew that I, I, would, I would definitely get at, um, in the secular academic space, right? Um, and I'm always trying to encourage people to, to seek out those, those opportunities. Yeah, I think I, I definitely agree. I think, you know, things that have shaped me have been the most experiences. Uh, I always tell the story of me being at the Academy of Preachers and that's mm -hmm. where you're going to have your more, you know, mainline yep. divinity school students and being yep. some, one of the only uh, people there that went to a, a conservative evangelical space and how that shaped me and kind of laid the framework for why I didn't do courageous conversations. Yeah. And then going to University of North Florida and doing religious studies there and then going, you get that both and that's so crucial. I think that helps 
shape and be a better balance. Um, yeah, 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 that's right. Balance. Were you going to say something else or? Yeah, I was just gonna, I mean, it, it produces in you certain sensitivities, right? Um, sensitivities that you probably already have just by virtue of your experience, right? Um, both in religious spaces and in the broader culture. Uh, we kind of bring those sensitivities um, into our training. But then having that kind of shaping that engages both um, theologically conservative spaces and, and more secular spaces, um, it produces in you a certain intellectual sensitivities, right? Where, again, you don't assume things um, or you don't leave things unpacked um, and unnuanced uh, because you understand that both history and our contemporary context is just more colored um, um, than particular narratives might want to tell. And again, and I'm telling, I keep calling back to this point, it has so um, helped me for this current moment that we live in um, because there are just certain narratives that I cannot abide uh, and I'm, I'm insistent on calling out when I encounter them um, that don't help um, the cause, right? And the irony is um, many people would, would be led to believe that giving those simplistic narratives um, and making sure that a kind of triumphal reading or sacred reading of American religious history, American Christian history in particular, is what is gonna preserve some of these things that we wanna preserve. But that actually does the exact opposite, right? Because we're living in a time where um, those kind of narratives are gonna always be called out. <laughs> um, and so um, having those sensitivities kind of baked into you because of the diversity of your experiences um, primes and preps you for this current cultural moment in ways that um, individuals who have only existed in theological silos find themselves currently incapable um, uh, and ill-equipped to do. Yeah. How do you challenge those who are in the, in the in le, in the more less spaces like you, you're at Harvard now that may think you're in a type of sunken place because you you are orthodox in your belief and and would line more to conservative uh, principles and then how do you challenge your conservative uh, brothers and sisters to be more open minded um, yeah. in their in their uh, sometimes narrow thinking about the left. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the sunken place, huh? Um, <laughs> you know, one of the, well, you know, no, it's, it's real, it's real. One of the things um, that will hopefully characterize, you know, the work that I eventually, eventually become my dissertation is um, I'm focused on early American 18th, 19th century um, black Calvinists. And um, my aim, and this is early, I'm still in, about to start the coursework phase, so um, this all could change. Um, but my aim is hopefully to maybe do an intellectual history um, on, a, on a group of folks, or maybe just one person, um, demonstrating that there is a tradition, right, of what we would, in our contemporary context, call um, a theological conservatism that dovetailed with an orientation to justice, right? And so one of the things that I gently critique um, about narratives that are told in kind of in these predominantly secular spaces is that theological conservatism will always get you to injustice. It will always get you to racism. It will always be on the quote unquote wrong side of dot, dot, dot. Um, I'm trying to raise counterfactuals to that point um, in early American history 
um, of folks who are captivated, their theological imagination is captivated by um, notions, again, of what we would call theological conservatism or orthodoxy, um, and yet they wield them in liberative ways, right? So this would be um, the antithesis of what a Jonathan Edwards will do um, with you know, his the evangelical theology that he is, is helping to form and shape, right? So it's pointing to those figures um, that I think contradict the narrative, uh, the predominant narrative that I think we, we often are, are engaged with, right? Um, how can you hold to these theological distinctives knowing that people who held to these theological distinctives or the sociopolitical context in which these, in which these theological distinctives emerged um, were directly involved and complicit in the oppression of, of um, African peoples, native peoples, et cetera. Um, it's doing the hard work of, of showing um, uh, the counterfactuals historically um, that disprove that point, right? Um, and then also, I mean, I, I, I always want to, to remind folks that, you know, when you think about the traditional black denominations, um, I think this often gets missed um, in current discourse, but whether it's National Baptist Convention, Church of God in Christ, African Methodist Episcopal Church, um, I, I think if you let certain folks tell it, um, you know, those denominational entities um, are just running leftward in kind of the theological orientation. And uh, I don't I don't think that's the case. Um, I think we need to ask why there is um, this stubborn maintaining of conservative theological distinctives uh, from denominational entities that are founded kind of in the seedbed of um, a pushback to um, oppressive forces, right? Um, racist forces. Um, how do they? How do they give an apologetic for maintaining these distinctives, and yet see themselves as fighting for justice, as uh, pushing back against um, racist or racialized um, institutions and structures, uh, wherever they may be found? I think it's because um, there's a historical tradition there. Uh, um, to put it simply, um, black folk believe in the Bible and seeing in the Bible um, rightly understood um, a God of justice um, and a God who uh, abhors the things that we have abhor, both historically and contemporarily, right? Um, but it's doing that within a context that views the word of God as, um, as such and seeks to maintain an integrity um, of faith um, for the purpose and for the sake of fighting for these things, right? It sees those two things as being leaked. Um, so yeah, I'm just always trying to to kind of show counterfactuals to the person who would who would ask questions about why I land where I land on certain issues. Um, to my evangelical brothers and sisters, who again probably more often existed in theological silos, um, I think one of the most helpful things that I've I've been able to do is disrupt simplistic readings of history, right? Um, so oftentimes in my work here on Capitol Hill, um, when I'm around people of the political right um, who hold positions on certain issues that I might agree with, um, one of the things that I'm always critiquing is the way in which they talk about these things because they're often devoid of um, a historical reckoning, right? Um, and devoid of nuance. And so one of the things that I'm always trying to help them understand is the history of an idea, right? That in order to land on a particular conviction, 
you have to trace that thing back, right, and do your work, your homework, historically. Um, and give an apologetic for the ways in which um, perhaps those who held the position that you hold today fumbled and dropped the ball, right, in major ways. Um, so I, I, that's one of the, the kind of current um, drums that I've been beating, um, particularly to my white evangelical brothers and sisters, is um, we, we need to make sure that we're telling an honest history um, as we seek to champion the things that we're trying to champion, uh, because to not do so um, undermines um, our holding and maintaining of certain theological distinctives. It, it shows them illegitimate, um, and it causes them to be um, viewed as suspect. Um, and so um, an accurate historical reckoning, I think, is helpful, um, again, particularly to um, with um, a view of American Christian history that, that is often um, viewed as sacred and, and triumphalized in ways that I don't think are true or helpful. So those are just a couple of, a couple of things um, that I would offer on that front. Yeah. And I definitely agree with a, 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 a honest view of history because uh, when I'm in, in my apologetic spaces with my, my conservative evangelicals, uh, uh, brothers and sisters, I'm always challenging them on this notion that, you know, we're, America is on the decline um, as far as morality. And then you, you, as an African-American, you step in that space and you're like, well, that narrative kind of doesn't really go with history. So you're, you're pushing back on it. Um, and I think that's a great point you made when we talk about um, going back to the point about liberalism, too, and black churches, because I have friends who have graduated from more uh, liberal mainline schools who got jobs as pastors in black churches. And while they don't believe in exclusivity, they'll say, man, I'll never preach that from the pulpit because I'll lose my job. So, <laughs> you know, right. that's just, <laughs> right. that's the reality of it, that black churches in, in large part still affirm orthodox uh orthodox values and yeah, yeah. have very orthodox positions on on things well i mean one of the interesting things right i mean going back to liberation theology again i have a lot of sensitivities around that because because i deeply understand why um a theological thinker of color when asking white evangelical theologians about what their orthodoxy has to say about what's going on in the South uh, in the midnight in the mid twentieth century. Um, they say nothing. Uh, our theological distinctions have nothing to say about that. Yeah, I'd probably go back to my room and start writing too, uh, and come up with a theology that does have something to say, right? Um, but one of the things that I think is fascinating is that I think on the whole, you know, Black liberation theology as um, a theological system never really took hold on the ground in traditional black church spaces the way in which I think it was initially intended, right? In, in many ways, it became an, an academic discipline, right? Um, and so you'll see works by like Raphael Warnock, Divided Mind of the Black Church, um, trying to call black church back to uh, what he's trying to say is um, a rootedness in black liberation theology. But I would say you, you never saw outside of, you know, your, your Trinity United or whatever, um, a rootedness of this theology as a system, right, in black churches. And I think it's because, again, by and large, um, 
you have a Bible folk um, who um, are committed to certain claims and commitments um, and anything that, that runs afoul of that, even though they may be sensitive to it with the orientations to justice, um, they're going to take issue with, right? And so you're absolutely right. There are many who go off, who are trained and rooted in black church um, context, um, go off to divinity schools, learn some big words, uh, come back to the pulpit and realize folks don't care about those words. Uh, they want to know um, what thus says the Lord, right? Um, that deserves a, a, a question, right? That should cause some pause. And I think one of the things that we do to our to our disservice that that I lament is is oftentimes people in the pews are are tagged and regarded as oh well they just you know they're just backwards folks and we just gotta labor with them and try to train them up and educate them. You know, I, I think I think some humility is deserved there about why uh why that mother on the front row wearing her hat. Um, believes what she believes um so so yeah i've seen that too so for uh i know our time is is uh was about gone but uh for those who uh want to read more on this topic or just read more around kind of the both and experiences and how to navigate those um on the left and the right uh what what resources would you recommend yeah well first let me say uh, what i'm always asked because having the, you know, I, I did an MDF at Southern Seminary, um, and then just by God's kindness, um, was able to, to engage the spaces that I engage now. Um, I always say that I wouldn't have pursued um, that Yale Masters and certainly um, not this PhD um, at Harvard um, if I had not had um, the experience and training that I did at Southern, right? That's not to say that. Um, that I would commend that as a you know blanket case across the board, but I would say what helped me um, engage well um, in the kind of secular academic spaces is a rootedness in um, the theological distinctives that I hold to. Right, um, it it prepared me to um, to have more substantive dialogue around those diverse tables. Um, and so I, I, would, I would just encourage folks, one, to, to, um, to not totally disregard um, the experiences if they're in um, evangelical seminaries and certainly continue to pursue those. I think they're important. Um, but in terms of setting one's expectations right, um, works that I think would be helpful to read. Um, Anthony Bradley has a work um, I'm, I'm blanking on the title, something like Black Faces and White Spaces or something like that. Um, if they just Google it, um, I think it's like Black Faces and White Spaces. But he's talking about some of the experiences that, that you and I have unpacked it that I think do map on to the question of um, how to pursue and how to view um, theological education or the academy. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think if there are are, are works that are written because one, one of the things that I think I, I found is there isn't a um, there isn't a, there wasn't a helpful outline that I followed right um, even as I was pursuing these these spaces you know people who wrote my recommendations um, it, it is something that people view as um, 
needing a strict warning, right? You don't go into these kind of spaces that don't share your theological uh, commitments. Um, and I just disagree with that, right? I, I definitely wanna, wanna say that I understand the warning involved and I would certainly caution individuals as well, but there, there wasn't a kind of ready-made map for me. Um, I was simply just um, pursuing spaces because of a really a, a burden and a calling to, to be in these spaces where narratives are told that I wanna hopefully make some interventions in. Um, yeah, so maybe maybe when this is posted, I'll I'll have some works that I can put in the comment section. But but there really isn't, I think, um, a mapping out, um, and I would say it's needful of how to view, um, particularly from an African American uh, standpoint, how to view theological training and how to view seminary versus academy. Um, I just think it ought to be pursued humbly and um, um, with wisdom and with. Um, with a lot of people speaking in and advising. Um, I've given certain individuals a commendation to pursue the secular space, and I've given others pause based off of things that I perceived in that individual person, right? Um, and I think that's definitely part of it. I think, I think some are called to pursue and should. I think others um, are not. And um, it's, it's a matter of discerning um, what God is, what you feel God is, is calling you to do and wanting to do in your life. So, um, so yeah, um, outside of, of works, um, what I really have is a, is a litany of, 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 of principles that I think would help, help guide someone into making, making a kind of decision like this. Awesome. Awesome. Well, how can people get in touch with you on social media? Um, is there a website? Um, are you active on social media? <laughs> You know that you know the answer to that. Um, <laughs> my Twitter game is putrid. Um, I do have a Twitter handle. Um, it is smharris underscore. Um, I think the best way to get in touch with me though would be email. And um, again, you can you can leave that on the um, or tag that on the the video. Um, yeah, in this season, I mean, again, this is part of it. Um, when you're pursuing this kind of academic trajectory, there's not a lot of time left to um, to, to be uh, to be vis visible on social media. Not as much as I as I want to be. Uh, again, I'm married. I have a son, and I work uh, full time. And I'm trying to pursue a PhD full time. So um, I, I leave the social media debates up to other other people who are more able than I. Um, and I check in where I can. But but email is probably the best way to get in touch with me. Um, and I can give it here if you want me to, or we can we can leave it. Uh, I can leave it under, here. I can okay. leave it in the comments. Yeah. Well, thank you so yeah. much, Stephen. This has been a rich time, and I think uh, people are really going to be blessed by this. This is not a conversation that we see a lot, uh, but I think it's very, very crucial and, and important for us as African-Americans um, that yeah. are pursuing a higher education. Uh, well, sure. I, I agree. And um yeah, appreciate you having me on. Look forward to engaging any folks with, with any questions. Um, I'm still trying to figure it out myself. So so check back with me in five to seven years, which is how long it's going to be. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jew Theory Project podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com, or you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. 
by searching the G3 Project. You can also get better equipped with our Bible Engagement app by searching the App Store, Google Play, or Apple App Store by searching the Jude 3 Project, and that will help you better engage Scripture on a daily basis. If you would like to donate to the Jude 3 Project, go to jude3project.com and hit the Donate tab. In addition, you can follow us on, in, on social media by searching at Jude 3 Project on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, here at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.